You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Again, we're going to be in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Uh, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one, uh, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. My name is Corey. I am... Uh, here this morning with the enviable or maybe unenviable task of diving into a passage of scripture that begins with wives submit to your husbands. It's great. It's what I was hoping for when I woke up this morning. But now we're, uh, before I get into that, I want to thank you for being here this morning, particularly if you are a first time guest. Our hope for you today, as you're here with us, if it's your first time, is you would experience the goodness of God in the community of God and therefore desire to be a part of that community and join us in membership. That would be our, our hope for you. And as Ty said, we're continuing on in our summer series uh, called Life Together, looking at the uh, middle three books of the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And this morning, over the next two weeks, we're going to be doing something that's a little bit different. We're going to be spending two weeks in the same passage of Scripture discussing what the Lord requires of us as believers in our marital relationship. What is it that God has created in marriage and has gifted to us for our good and ultimately for his glory. So we wanted to be very careful with how we walked into this, particularly um, in light of the culture that we currently live in, right? These are hot button topics right now that are being discussed and debated across the world in all forms, inside the church, outside the church. Um, anywhere that you go, you're going to find varying opinions on what we see here, what we see Paul write, the instruction that he gives. And what we wanted to do was ensure that we had plenty of time to be as faithful as we possibly could to the entire narrative of Scripture throughout this whole, uh, this whole subject matter. So last week, Ty was with us, and he, he spent some time discussing how Paul has instructed believers to conduct ourselves in relationships with one another. And then as we see from that, he ends in verse 21, Paul says, he instructs the, the Ephesians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and then immediately jumps into what we see here in verse 22. So um, as I said, in light of the times that we live in today, we wanted to make sure that we were careful with this and we took our time with it. Um, marriage, if you look and the statistics bear this out, marriage 
is something or seems to be something that is becoming less and less valued in our culture as the years go by. Uh, statistics tell you that as of 2019, 53% of adults over the age of 18 are married. That number in 1995 was 58%. And in 1970, that number was 72%. So what the numbers tell us and what we see in our lives, they see in our, our relationships with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with one another, with people in the church, is that marriage is becoming less and less of an imperative or a, a highly held value in our culture, but rather that we are choosing to, to do things other or, be, or have union with partners in ways that God has not necessarily created for us to have those unions. And as culture continues to shift, as we move further and further from the biblical narrative, we see that marriage becoming less and less important to the world around us and, and even sometimes within the church. Like we've seen that, we've experienced that, and it's an epidemic. So it was clear to us we needed to take time delivering these sermons on marital relationship to make sure we clearly communicated these next few verses. Now, as I said before, this is a subject matter that cuts against the grain of the world that we live in today and in a lot of cases is often held up and shown to be detrimental to believers rather than helpful. We don't believe that to be the case. Our position here is this, that the teachings of Paul we see in Ephesians 5 on marriage are key in understanding how God intends for our marriages to operate and are the most God-honoring way we can go about our relationship with our spouses. So, so that's kind of our focus, and that, that's the lens through which we're looking at, looking at that. And today, my job in particular in the first sermon is to begin laying framework to help us understand why that is true. So before I start this morning, I want to address a couple of things that, that when we start talking about the topic of marriage, we'll often bring up in the hearer as they sit in, in the congregation. And then first of all, the first thing I want to mention is that Oftentimes, you begin to talk about marriage, and those of us who are here, those of us who are single, those of us who are not married will tend to check out and say, not only is this not applicable to me right now, but, but actually it's very hurtful for me to think about because in a lot of those cases, those of you who are single desire to be married. And I, what I want to reach out to you today and say, I want to encourage you not to do that not to check out. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why that's important. Number one, single people are part of the body of Christ, period. And therefore, because single people are part of the body of Christ, you are called to be in community with married couples. So that gives you purpose in this doctrine when we speak of marriage as a single person that gives you purpose and reason to want to lean into these scriptures, to lean into these things that Paul teaches. Your role as a single person is not to sit on the sidelines and wait for a spouse before you feel that you are valuable to the married couples that are around you. You hold very great value now. In your current state as God has ordained you to be right now, in your singleness, you're called to minister to the married people around you? If you don't know what the scriptures say about marriage, you can't perform that duty. That is a role, it's a responsibility of all of us. And you do not get pushed to the side or ignored in that responsibility simply because you are in your singleness right now. Your singleness doesn't make you a JV member of the community that God's given you. It's important. I want us to understand that. I want us to lean into that. In a lot of ways, that's why we don't do things like single min singles ministry here at Providence. I'm not saying that singles ministry is bad. What I'm saying is that our philosophy is single, married, male, female, it matters not. We're all part of the body of Christ. We all minister to one another in community with one another, and that's important. 
Single people and married people should be together. They should be laboring side by side for the cause of Christ. So that's the first group that I wanted to address. The second group I want to address actually in a lot of cases in the past has included myself. Um, And I have, as I've gone through this and studied and, and read, I've had to to repent to God for this because it's, it's often something that, that we do and we're not even aware that we're doing it, right? We're not even aware that it's detrimental to our lives as believers. But the second group would be men who will mock the seriousness of this subject matter when they see the command for wives to submit to their husbands. We'll see that. And, and I, like I said, I'll, I'll admit that more often than not, this will be read from a pulpit. And my reaction is to take my elbow and hit my wife and say, hey, listen up. Mocking the seriousness of the subject matter. We make it a joke. We, we make, it, make it something that, that, that God did not intend for it to be. And even, even furthermore than that, we can also as men use this subject matter to justify a domineering relationship over the spouse that God has given us. I would ask you this morning to, to not lean into either of those perspectives, but rather look at the subject and read and listen and have the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what your role is in that. We're guilty, men. We turn the subject of godly submission into a punchline. And when we do that, and here's the thing, particularly today, particularly in the culture that we're in, and it's been that case for a while, when we mock that subject matter, what we really do is pour gasoline on a fire. We just inflame the argument. We just make those around us, our wives or other women in the church that, that, that struggle with this topic, that struggle with these words, that struggle with Paul's instruction, we just make it harder for them to understand their purpose in that submission. And we'll get into that over the next two weeks. And I, like I said, I can say this because I'm the chief offender. And I believe over the last couple of years, the reason that has been brought into focus for me is that, that my circle of friends is a circle that contains a ton of very strong women, great wives, lovers of Christ, great mothers, strong career women. And they have called me out multiple times when I have chosen to make light of this subject matter or make light of their role in the marital relationship. And once again, not doing that in a way that, that I mean harm by it, but rather thinking that it's a joke, but it's not a joke to them. It's gasoline to a fire. It's, it's, it's aiding in a struggle. So I would ask that this morning, if that's your focus, if that's the first thing that came to your head, let's ask the Holy Spirit to remove that so that we can focus and we can see what he has for us this morning. And lastly, um, they're very linked to the last point that I made. There, there will be women who will hear the subject matter and reject it immediately because the word submission is on top of the passage of Scripture. If that's you, I want you to try and hang with us these next two weeks. I believe our goal, and I think what we will do, in, as I believe in the faithfulness of God in laying this out in front of us, I believe that we will paint a picture of a glorious relationship between husbands and wives requiring mutual submission in order to achieve God's purposes. That's my hope for us when we leave here over the next two weeks. And, and for all of those things, because of all of those things are involved, this has weighed heavily on me as I have prepared to come up here this morning. And, and I guess first and foremost, what I want to do is I want, I want to pray. As I've already admitted, I, I'm an imperfect messenger. A lot of you guys have known me for a long time. I, I'm an imperfect messenger, but I know who the perfect messenger is. And if I don't have the Holy Spirit with me today, I, w- I will feel miserably in trying to communicate these things. I will feel miserably in trying to be sensitive as we talk, to, talk through these things. And, and I will feel miserably in communicating them in a way that glorifies our Lord. So before we do anything, please, let me, let me pray for us. And then we'll jump right into, right into the scriptures. 
Father, we, we confess our need for you this morning. God, we, we confess our need for you, Father. We, we're so thankful that we have promises that you are with us, that we can, we can believe that, God. God, I, I, I thank you so much that we have assurance, God, that, that these words are from you. Father, I would pray that that would be the case. I would pray that anything, anything that may come from here today, that would come from me, whether it's trying to be funny or whatever, whatever for the sake of, of, of feeling successful or for, for, for being good in my speech, Father, I pray that you would move that out of the way. God, I pray that, that through your Holy Spirit, you would do work in all of us, men, women, married, single, children, whatever, my God, would you, would you do work in our hearts this morning? Would you change us for the better? Would you lead us to repentance? Show us the ways that we fail. Give us your grace to move on, God, and, and let us leave here in a way that glorifies you more so than when we came in. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so this morning I want to cover three points that, that I think emphasize uh, what, what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 5. But like I said, my job is to build the framework for God's purpose in marriage. So in order to build those three points, I want you to go all the way back with me. Turn in your Bibles because we're going to stay there for, for a while to Genesis chapter 1. All the way back to the very beginning of the creation narrative. And that's where we'll begin to look at God's purposes in marriage through his creation. Uh, my first point this morning is that husbands and wives have equality as image bearers of God. There is a unique power and understanding that the image of God is stamped on all of us, husband, wife, male, female alike, and that we would really understand that and we, we would use that to help frame the words that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Genesis 1. We're going to be in verses 26 through 28. Starting in verse 26, I'll read it. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So very early on in the Bible, in the creation story, we clearly see God has intended, and he has intentionally intended for men and women to have equality as image bearers of God. Now, many will claim, if you look into this, many will claim that equality as image bearers was gained through the cross. Therefore, that releases us from the roles that Paul describes in Ephesians 5, and it creates ambiguity that allows for men and women to shift roles in their marriage as they see fit. And per the scriptural narrative, that is simply not true. Go back with me to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's, it's very important for us to see that God having already created all other living creatures at this point, everything else, all other, all other creatures that are living have been created, God steps forward and he announces his intention to create man. 
And in doing so, he creates a distinction in the creation of mankind. Mankind, the creation, as the Bible will tell us in verse 27, both male and female were created with a distinction that separates us from all other living things that God created on the earth. That that is very important for what we're talking about here. God shows great intentionality. He shows that his part of creation is personal. This particular part is personal, and it will be distinctly different than all other aspects of creation because this creation will carry his image. There is such weight in that statement. There's such weight in understanding that in the creation of all of us, God stamped his image on us. That brings a lot of freedom in a lot of issues that we discuss, a lot of things that we debate when we see that all created beings, whether the most priestly priest you've ever known all the way down to the most ungodly human being that ever walked the face of the earth, all of them were created in the image of God. And therefore, it brings a, a, a sanctity to each individual life, regardless of their actions, that the world may say, that life is unworthy of anything. We say it's absolutely worthy because it's stamped with the image of God. And we see that early on in the book of Genesis. Moving on to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So God does what he said he was going to do in verse 26, and he designates and creates his divine image in the creation of man. And then he affirms his purposeful creation of gender and declares that both males and females carry his image. Now, why is this significant? When we look back and we begin to look at the things that Paul will tell us, that court will jump into next week specifically in chapter 5 of Ephesians, we, when we discuss equality in the marital relationship, we often go directly to things of less importance than the image of God. That's why you will read, wives submit to your husbands, and immediately you'll recoil because we focus on things of less importance. Right? We, we don't look at the idea that because we are image bearers of God, there is equality. And what you'll see coming in behind that when Paul talks to husbands is this idea of mutual submission between the two. But we recoil because what we initially see and initially think of are things of less importance, whether those things be parenting roles. Maybe it's who works and who doesn't. Maybe it's who earns more money. These are not insignificant things. These are things that are impactful and should be talked about and should be discussed and decided on in the marital covenant, but those things pale in comparison to the understanding that there is equality found between the man and the wife by being image bearers of God. And that's been God's, that's been God's design from the very beginning. Equality in the marital relationship is certain because males and females have been created in the image of God. So there's no need to seek earthly things to evidence equality. There's freedom in that. No need to seek earthly things for the believer. It's an evidence equality because we know, we know that we have been created with ultimate equality by God. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this has come to be known as the cultural mandate, right? God creates man, he creates woman, and then he looks at him and he says, image bearer, Image bearer, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with other image bearers. We joke a lot here about our number of babies, but you guys have taken this very, very seriously. We've had, I've been involved in this church in some way, shape, or fashion since about 2014, late 2013. We've never not had this issue, ever. Even when it was, even when it was brand new, we've never not had this issue with children. It's a great issue to have. I've said, I'll go a little off topic here, but I think it's important to mention. 
I have, with all the challenges that came with COVID, with all of the things that came with 2020, one of the things that I have enjoyed and gleaned from the most is having my children in corporate worship with the body with me. Now, I would have not told you that before all of those things happened, but, but God has created a way. And what I've seen, in my, particularly in my boys that are old enough to understand, I've seen them listening to people, grown people, talking about things that in a lot of ways should be over their head, but at the same time beginning to understand the gospel more. And that's not to discredit the work that's done back there. I think we do amazing work back in Providence Kids with our children. We have great volunteers that do, do really good things, but it has been great for me to see the foundation that's been laid back there in the lives of my 11-year-old and my 7-year-old and then begin to see it come to fruition through the power of the Holy Spirit in here. And it's little things, like one time Court was preaching, I can't remember when the sermon was, but he was telling the story of Cain and Abel. And Jonah handed me a drawing that he drew. It was a picture of, of the sermon that Court said, and it said, uh, you know, Cain did a bad thing, God forgave him, he moves on. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, maybe, not really, not necessarily accurate, but nonetheless, he's beginning to understand that when we sin, that there is forgiveness through the cross. And that's what I want, want to be going through his mind. So, so God has, has called the man and he's called the woman to multiply, fill the earth with other image bearers. He also gives them the command to subdue the rest of creation, to have dominion over the rest of creation. He says, you've been given my image, so image me as my representatives among creation. It's really cool. It's really good to think about. And this was a huge responsibility that was given to them. And it was given, and he's clear in verse 28 when he says them, it was given to both men and women. So God has charged the crown jewel of his creation to make use of the resources that he has given them to bring God ultimate glory. And they do that together. They do that as a team. They do that as a unit because, and like I said in verse 28, that mandate is given to them, both male and female, pinnacle of creation, image bearers of God. So both being blessed with the image of God, as we said earlier, creates equal worth. And in verse 28, we see that it creates equal importance in God's purposes for the world, and we can rest in that promise. Therefore, anything beyond that, any instruction that we may receive to men and women beyond Genesis chapter 1 should be viewed through the lens of equality and image bearing. And that's what makes the tough subject matter that we'll get into in Ephesians 5 palpable for us. That's what makes it applicable. That's what makes us able to apply it. Moving on to point two, husbands and wives, while equal in image bearing, are distinct in role. And this is also this is also God's design in creation, that there would be distinction in the roles that men and women play in their place in the marital union and on the earth. Um, the creation account in Genesis 1, it goes to great lengths to drive home importance of equality in creation and image bearing. But the more detailed account in Genesis 2 begins to reveal the distinction in roles given to men and women at the time of creation. Now, this may be where we start to squirm a little bit with this. We don't like being told there's something someone else can do that we cannot do, even if that which we cannot do is a natural reality in our lives. I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you a story, and I, it's not even in my notes because I just saw it when I was leaving my house this morning, but my life's about to get really, really busy. Kids are about to get back in school. Football's starting up. Football is a lot. It's a lot of time. We love it. It's a great time spent with my family. Grace is old enough now, which I never thought this day would come because it's just not her natural bend. But even Grace has signed up to be a cheerleader this year, which creates even more um, 
commitment, more time. And the thing that I start to do as we near football season is the summer comes. It starts in about April. I make a list of projects, things that I have to get done around the house, and I have to get them done before the end of July. Because after July, I barely have time to keep my grass mowed and keep the HOA out of my mailbox. And that's just the way that it is. It's just our life right now. And I love this stage of life. So what I did about three weeks ago, we came home from vacation and I called Dirt Cheap Mulch because I wanted to move some new bull rock in around my place. I wanted to uh, freshen up some of the old bull rock that has kind of sunk over the years. And I don't, I don't know if you understand this term. A lot of you probably will. I made the mistake of ordering eight yards <laughs> of bull rock. And I was, we got home on a Thursday. I'd called them, you know, before I left the beach. And we were at Court's house Friday morning for a uh, little staff and elder get-together. And I get a phone call. Hey, man, we're coming. We're bringing your rock. And I'm like, great. It's time to go. Only got a few weeks left. Let's get it going. And that guy backed up, and he dumped a pile of rock in my driveway that when I got home, I told Leah, I said, I'll, I'll never get that moved. And here's my plan because I'm, I'm so great at planning. I'm going to move it with a wheelbarrow and a shovel by myself. All over, the, all over my two acres, I'm going to move eight yards of bull rock with a wheelbarrow and a shovel. I'm going to do it in three weeks before I get super busy. Let me tell you something. Number one, it has done nothing in Huffman, Texas, but rain for the last three weeks. I've been outside in the rain shoveling bull rock in this wheelbarrow. I have moved so much rock, and that pile looks the same. It's the same size pile. So I get home yesterday. Uh, Leah had to go to a funeral down in, in the motherland in Hull. And uh, I had sizing for football. Then we had tryouts for a couple of age divisions. And she pulls up. I get home and she says, hey, what are we going to do about that pile of rock out in the driveway? Because you are officially now out of time. And I told her, I said, I take it as a personal challenge. I'll get it moved. I said, I'll move it a wheelbarrow at a time, a shovel full at a time, after work, as long as I have daylight, until I get it done. And I tell you that story to say, people do not like being told that they cannot do things. Because she looked right back at me and said, you'll never do that. It'll be there at Christmas. And you know what? She's right. <laughs> if I don't hire somebody, Santa Claus will have to move that bull rock because I will never get it done. And here's where this all ties in. That pile of rock in my driveway in no way reflects my worth as a man, reflects my worth as a husband, or reflects my worth as a father. But yet, it lays in my driveway, and I refuse to hire somebody to help me with it. Why is that? Because I don't understand my limitations. And I thank God that in Scripture, particularly in my role as a husband and a father, even though I'm imperfect at applying it, I thank him that he has shown me my limitations, and he has created someone to come alongside me in my journey that can look back at me and say, you'll never move that rock. I'm so thankful for that. All right, so turn with me in your Bibles, probably a page or whatever, however big your Bible is, it may not be a page, but to Genesis chapter 2. I want to read, start in verses 5 through 9 as we look, in, look at this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, men, if ever you're tempted to entertain your pride when it wells up, when we start talking about this subject matter, I would point you back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and remind you that you started as dust. We started as dust. There's nothing that we do. There's nothing that we have. There's no position that we've been given that wasn't first given to us because God scooped us up out of a pile of dust and breathed life into our lungs and gave us the power to do those things. That is so important for us to remember. I'm going to skip down to verse 15. I'll start reading there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here, when we start talking about distinct roles between husbands and wives, here we see the first and second distinction, the distinct roles that were given to the men. The first one that we see is to work. And I want to point out, I think it's important for us to understand, that this command to work the garden was given pre-fall. This was given before sin entered into the world. Men, we are called to work. We can get lulled into believing that work has come about as a consequence of sin, but what we see clearly in the scriptures is that isn't the case. Men, for you, for your distinct role, for your distinct purpose, for your distinct ability to perform God's purposes, you need to understand that work is good. Work is necessary, and it's essential to a man, and it serves, and here's why it's important. It serves to keep the man focused and firmly in the center of God's will for his life, and this was his design from creation. Leah gets on to me all the time because I have two gears. I'm either wide open or I'm laying down asleep. I I'm, I'm just told you about all the projects that I plan. I either have a million things to do or I'm lazy and worthless after I come home from my job where somebody actually makes me work. I've learned that about myself, and I stay loaded down because of it. I stay loaded down. I fight against those things. I fight against those inclinations. I don't want to be lazy. I don't want to lay around. I don't want to not do that which I have to do. But I also know if I don't give myself things to do, my inclination is to go there. So to protect from going out of my God-ordained and created role for me as a man, I stay loaded down. This is part of what I do. A husband's work doesn't only apply to the type of work that produces a paycheck. This is another thing. This is something important for us to remember. It doesn't always, your work doesn't always produce a paycheck for you. Husbands are also called to work and cultivate in the lives of their wives and children and aid them in pursuing Christ. This is your role as a leader in your home, in your marriage, as a husband, as a father. If we are not cultivating our, our wives, if we are not cultivating our children, if we are not praying for them, if we are not pointing them to Christ, if we are not the one getting them up and bringing them here putting them in community, but rather they're doing it for us. We are out of our role that God's created for us. This is, this is important. We talked about cultural decline in these areas. I am firmly convinced that cultural decline in these areas is taking place because men have neglected their responsibility to cultivate the lives of their wives and children. And here's what's awesome. Here's what's awesome is a guy who came from a family where I had a praying mother and I had a disinterested father and my mother drug us constantly, constantly till the day that we saw my dad come to know the Lord and I came to know the Lord and my brother came to know the Lord and our wives and our children, all of those things. God is still full of grace and dispensing mercy even in the moments that we don't get it right. It's, it's incredible. It's important. But men, get it right. 
Get it right. And the only way you can get it right is by submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit and understanding that sometimes this feels overwhelming. I know Matt Chandler preaches a sermon where he talks about, you know, the roles of, of men in the marriage. And he talks about coming home after work and, and being exhausted and pulling up in his driveway and having to sit there and take a deep breath and pray that the Holy Spirit could give him power to go in his home and perform his role. And I know, I know what that feels like. Because sometimes I want to come in and I want to go to my room and I want to lay down underneath my fan because I love big fans. And, they, and I want to lay under it and I want to do nothing and I want to stare at my phone and I want to tell my kids to go play Fortnite and leave me alone. But I can't. I can't and I won't. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will continue, continue to do that work in me because it's, it's an imperfect work. The second distinctive role that we see here is that God has given the man the Roll the command to keep or to protect the garden as he works. And men have been given the role of protector of the things God has given them responsibility for. Whatever it is that God has given you responsibility for, your wife, your children, your job, your work, your ministry, whatever it is, he's given you that role and he's told you, commanded you, man, to, to protect it. And, and I, think, I think we like this one, Right? Like, we love the role of protector. I, I laugh at my wife all the time because our, our neighborhood Facebook page occasionally, you know, once or twice a month, someone will show a ring camera picture and say, this guy broke into my truck. He's going around. He's pulling door handles and stealing change. And there will be 400 comments under it from every man under the sun that lives there that says, I dare him to come to my place. I dare him to stay locked and loaded around here. I told Leah, once, we were reading it one time, and I was like, you know, I swear some of these people are begging for the opportunity to shoot somebody. Like, we love the idea of protecting our people. We, we love this fantasy that, that some masked intruder will one day kick the door off, and we'll spring out of bed in the middle of the night, and we'll protect our people and choke them out and put them down and, and, and be this great protector. But the reality of your life is that there's a very, very small percentage that that is the type of protection you get to provide for your family. Very, very small percentage. So my question for us today, men, would be how? How are we doing in protecting our wives and children from the one who wants their soul? Do we spend as much time working on our prayer life as we do working on our aim? Do we spend as much time petitioning our, petitioning our, our God for, for the, the soul protection of our wife and children as we do, you know, fantasizing about what it would be like to, to catch the guy breaking into your truck? And those things seem comical, they seem immature, but I'm telling you they're true. I'm telling you, I'm standing here telling you that they're true. And this is what God has, has, has given us. He said, protected, and, and the best protection that we can ever provide for those that we love is to spend time continuously, often, and regularly petitioning the Lord for that protection, to give us the power to do those things. Verses 16 and 17. So says, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the, God gives the man a very straightforward command at this time. Immediately after assigning responsibility for work, immediately after assigning responsibility for protection, God shows him every beautiful tree in the garden, all the beautiful fruit that's available to him, but he's shown one tree from which he is not permitted to eat. And remember, I want to be clear about this. This is commanded to the man prior to the creation of woman, lest we intend to blame the woman for what we see transpire in Genesis 3. 
And I want to be careful here because this, this is where the sermon begins to sound like I am pumping up the responsibility of the man and downplaying the responsibility of the woman in the marital union. I, I want to be clear. This is what God has commanded. This is what God has set out. This is why I'm in Genesis to ensure that as we continue to read, we understand this is the narrative from creation. This is what has been laid before us. And we'll get into distinct roles of the wife here shortly as we continue to push through. In this, we find in, in this particular spot where, where he has shown the tree, he has given it, it happens before the woman's created, we find the third distinct role given to man, which is leadership and ultimate responsibility. Even though at this particular time he has no idea that he will have anyone to lead, and I circle back to singles, single men. Even though he has no idea he would have anyone to lead, he's given the role of leadership and ultimate authority. Single guys, work, protect, and lead even if you currently don't have anyone to lead from a marital perspective. This is important. You never know when God will bless you with a wife. And let me tell you something, as a guy who had a really rough first few years of marriage, listen, these are not skills that are best honed prior, after, I apologize, these are not skills that are best owned after taking on the responsibility. On-the-job training in this area is not an easy road. It's not good, and it often ends in tragedy. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord says, it's not good that man would be alone in the garden. It would be great if he had a helper. It would, in some ways and in every way, complete him if he has a helper. And then he declares he will create a helpmate for him and reveals the first distinct role of the woman, which is to be helper. Now, once again, there's another thing that makes us squirm. Like, what do you mean my role is as a helper? I've got unique value. I, I can do things. And, and once again, I'll circle back to this because it's important that you understand my perspective. I am not married to a woman that is wired to be called a helper. My wife could do everything that I do, minus maybe that pile of rock, which I've already admitted I can't do that either. My wife has more education than me. She has more earning ability than me. She is, has multiple degrees. She's an RN, works in ICU, is also a certified teacher, works at a high school, runs a science, uh, or excuse me, runs a health science program at Huffman High School that turns kids out and prepares them for a career in the medical field. She is not the definition of helper by the world standards. I go to an oil and gas company that is incredibly established, and I do a lot of things, but let me tell you something. If I disappeared, they'd keep rolling without me right? And this is just true. This is just the fact of the matter. So I want you to understand my perspective. I am not in any way saying, ladies, prepare yourself for a life of helping. I'm telling you that God has intended more than what we draw out of this when we see it in the creation story. It's not a term that's meant to highlight the woman's inferiority. Rather, rather it's one that highlights the man's inadequacy and shows that without one created uniquely for him, and frankly, that's the same for the wife. Without the ones created uniquely for them, they cannot properly accomplish God's purposes in marriage. In the remainder of the scriptures, we see the word helper used to describe the Holy Spirit. We see it used as a descriptor for God. And I'm not drawing parallels between created beings and the creator. I'm just saying it's not a term taken lightly in the scripture. And it shouldn't be taken lightly by us when we read it and apply it to ourselves and apply it what we do. You never know. You never know what's coming. In the remainder of the scriptures, we see 
that the helper is used to hold up a lot of incredibly important things, and God also applies that label to the helpmate that he makes for the man in the garden, which would become his wife. Wives are called to pray. Wives are called to cultivate their husband's leadership. Wives are called to nurture the ones that have been given to her by God. And this is the crux of her responsibility in the marital union. And as I said, it folds perfectly into the responsibility of the man to create a relationship in marriage that is honoring to God ultimately, which at the end of the day should be our goal. Our goal should not be that we create a marriage that is honoring to the world and what they see, that they look at it and say, that's a really Equal and unique marriage where everyone has. No, no. We create marriages as Christians that are honoring to God. And this is what he has set up for us. I got to hustle here. Verses 19 through 22. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, God parades every living creature on earth before the man and tasks him with naming all of them. And when he's done, we're told that nothing that he saw that had been created was found to be a suitable helper for him. The man exercises God-given dominion over all created things as given to him by God, as we saw in Genesis 1. But there's only one being that God intends to create that man will not have complete dominion over, and that is the woman. That is the helper. Man was never meant to rule over his wife in a way that we are commanded to rule over creation. That's a, that's a pitfall here. We're never, never, never created for that. This is why God gives them equal dominion over creation in conjunction with one another. And it's in that spirit that God creates woman from man and in doing so created the perfect complement for him and for her. Even though distinct roles are created for both the man and the woman in Genesis 2, neither was created lower than the other. Neither was created lower than the other. Both were created as image bearers, both performing their God-given role as inside the image of God. And my third point as I roll toward closing here is that marriage is a covenantal union between men and women. Let's read verses 22 through 24. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were unashamed. The man's exclamation at seeing the woman after she was created, at last. I've thought about this, like, why, why, why did he react this way? And, I, and, and maybe I'm just elementary and haven't seen this in the past, but as I was studying for this, I ran across an article that talked about the loneliness that must have overcome the man, knowing that there was a helper that was coming and creation is being paraded in front of him, and he's naming them one after another, which I would assume took quite a bit of time. And as they came, nothing satisfied him, nothing. And he got to the end of the line, and he said, ah, Where's my helper? And then God creates the most perfect thing. She brings it from him and brings it to him. And his reaction is, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He is excited. When we enter into marital covenant before God with the one God has created specifically for us, we join with them both spiritually 
and physically in God's design. And that is the covenant that will never be broken. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, as he responds to a question about divorce. He says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When we marry, we are declaring that we are leaving the family, the family we've always known, the family we had no part in choosing, and we will begin a new family, one who will join us and be with us if we are, per God's design, for the remainder of our days. This is a beautiful reality. It's an incredible gift given to us by God through marriage. Now, here's the thing. You can't talk about that without also addressing the fact that that doesn't always happen. Right? And we know why that doesn't always happen. And as I want to talk about why it doesn't always happen as I, as I conclude here. So I want to make sure that we focus on that. The ultimate purpose of marriage for the believer in Christ is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Paul goes into great detail to explain how it relates in Ephesians 5, and Court will do that for us next week. He'll, he'll do all that for us next week. But for today, I will say this. I will say that the relationship between a man and a wife requires mutual submission and sacrifice between both parties. And as I said, this covenant of marriage that we enter into does not always work out the way that God has planned it. And that's because of what happens next. After we get through the Genesis 2, we see what happens next in Genesis 3. Serpent comes in and immediately attacks this design that God's given. He immediately attacks it. Um, he comes in, the man's absent. The serpent didn't go directly to the man as he's working the ground and could chop his head off with the hoe. No, he works his way around. He circumvents the man and he, he goes directly to the woman while the man is absent. She, he approaches her. The man's failing. He's not working. He's not protecting the garden. He's not protecting the woman that God has given him. Satan tempts the woman by speaking half-truth. Quoting a command of God, gave to a man before she was created. The man fails to stand up, lead his wife in the ways of the Lord, and sin enters the earth. And that is the reason why things don't always work out the way that God has intended them. Because sin is real, and it exists, and we fall prey to it consistently. That doesn't mean that we are forsaken. Of course we know we're not forsaken. The end of this story is that Christ puts on flesh, comes to the earth, dies on a cross, raises from the dead on the third day for the forgiveness of sin when we confess our belief in him. That's, that's what brings all of this to fruition. This can be done imperfectly. Man and wife, this relationship can be done imperfectly and it can still be redeemed by the blood of Christ. There's hope in that today because if any of you sit here and we're talking through this and you say, I'm hitting all those markers. I'm doing a great job. Let me promise you, you're not. You're not, and that's okay. None of us are. The blood of Christ covers those sins. The gospel is true for you today as it is true for me today because without the gospel, I can't even speak these things to you because I've fallen so short. That is the beauty of it. Everything that was made different at that point, everything that, that, was, that we have struggled with, everything that culture rages against, everything that cries out against this biblical narrative is being redeemed as we speak by Christ. And he's using us, his creation, purposely to exercise dominion on the earth in place of him as representatives of him to carry this message out to the ends of the earth and make sure 
that everyone is aware of that which God has created and that which he has given us because it is good, as he says at the end of the creation account. He creates it all, and he says it's good. Therefore, it's good then, and it's good today for us. And what I want to do today, I want to, I want to pray for us as I, as I close. I, like I said, this is, there's a lot here. And it's not, I, I've really wrestled in preparation as to how, what's the proper way to do this? What's the proper way to, to approach the subject matter? What, what is the proper way to, to, to put it out and to preach it, particularly, like I said, in light of the culture that we live in today? And my goal is just to stay close to the scriptures and let the Holy Spirit do his work. And that's what I'm going to pray for right now. I'm going to pray that, that the Holy Spirit would be with us, that his court comes next week and he builds on the framework of marriage that we've discussed today, that we, we, can, we can see and we can pull out the beauty of the gospel in those things. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll move on in the service. Lord, we need you. God, we need you in these ways, Father. We need your guidance. We need your protection. We need your leading, Father. We need your spirit. God, we need you to remind us and show us and convict us when we need to repent of sin. God, we need you to give us grace when we are imperfect. Give us grace when we don't apply these things properly. Give us grace when we treat our wives in a way that you have not intended for us to to treat them and give our wives grace when they treat us in a way that you've not intended for them to treat us. Lord, I pray that we would see beauty in the way that you created the earth. We wouldn't see an archaic system that no longer applies to what we do today, but God, we would... We would see and recognize the beauty in your creation narrative, God, that we would see it for what it is, that it's as applicable and powerful today as it was at that time, God, and that it's perfect, it's your perfect will for us. Lord, help us to not shy away from the fact that we'll have to cut against the grain of what's going on around us in order to to stand for that. God, let us not shy away from that, God. Give us mutual respect for one another. And Father, In the middle of all of this, I pray, God, that if there's one here that doesn't know you, that doesn't understand the power by which this is even possible, God, would you you impact that heart right now, Father? God, I pray that, that, that through the beauty of your scriptures, through the beauty of creation, God, that, that there would be people that don't know you today that would come to know you. They would leave here changed, God. They would leave here different. They would leave here with a different viewpoint, whatever they thought about you when they came in, that they would leave understanding that you, God, have given them new life. Let that be true. Lord, we love you. I thank you for the work that you're doing here. I thank you that even though it's hard to see, we know you're still working around us. Father, empower us, lead us, give us words. God, give us relationships with non-believers. Give us relationships with people that are in different life stages than we are. God, give us relationships that allow us to impact others with the gospel for the cause of Christ, for your causes, Jesus. And let us be impactful. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.